There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 406. And today, I'm joined by DIY public land bow hunting guru, Tony Peterson, to explore 10 different off-season tasks that can help you on your path to your best season ever. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today it is February something, early February 2021. And, uh, you know, we're smack dab in the midst of the off-season for most deer hunters across the country. I know there's a few exceptions, but a lot of us were, we're getting into the heart of the off season. And what I wanted to do today was talk through some ways we can make the best of that time. I know that there's, there's kind of two ways to think about the off season. I think within the whitetail world, there's, there's one group who look at the off season as a total flip off the switch and they're going off and doing other things completely. And then a week before hunting season, they start thinking about deer again, uh, or the week before, you know, opening day gun season. Um, that's how I grew up actually. But then there's this other half or maybe more than half or less than half. I don't know what the number is, but there's some other portion who is thinking about deer 365 days a year. And they're constantly thinking about these things. So what I want to do is kind of address folks on, on either side of that spectrum and share some ideas for ways that we can all add a little bit more into our off-season to-do list to take our hunting journey to the next level for 2021. So I'm here with my buddy, Tony Peterson. Uh, Tony, I think you're with me on this that, that well, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I have this constant back and forth with the off season where part of the time I'm like, I just want to shut down. I just want to step away from it. And then I've got this other half of me that's saying, go, go, go. There's so much you got to get done. You need to be more prepared than ever this year. And, and I find myself being pulled between these two opposite voices on my shoulders. Uh, do you ever find yourself in that situation too? Um, not as much as I used to buddy. Like I, I still do, but I find myself, you know, we're, we're stuck in this just, arctic blast right now and it's like 
the worst time of year. And I, I just find myself missing being able to easily go out and do something deer related. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not for me, it's not necessarily stress. Like, Oh, I'm not getting enough done before next season. It's just the, the overall anxiety of not doing anything. And I just want to be out there more. <sighs> I hear you there. So I got to tell you two stories related to that. Number one, uh, so that Arctic blast you mentioned, that's hitting us here in Michigan right now too. There's a zero degree wind chill. Uh, at the moment. And I live in this old kind of crappy farmhouse. And my, uh, my podcast editor, the guy that edits our podcast, he keeps complaining about the fact that there's some humming noise in my office when I record every once in a while. And so he, he's sending me like threatening emails and telling me he doesn't like me anymore and all this stuff. So finally I said, okay, fine. It's probably the heating, you know, vent turning on and off every once in a while. So I told him I would turn it off. So I've turned off the heat in our house, Tony, and I'm wearing two jackets, a puffy vest, and a hat to record this because I know it's going to be freezing any minute now, (laughs) the wind blowing and our old cruddy farmhouse leaking the little bit of heat I have. So that's that's story number one. And Hayden, I know you're listening, so uh, I hope you're happy. (laughs) And and then number two, speaking of not being able to get out and do stuff, I'm so desperate to get out and do things right now. And so just, I don't know, stir crazy with just everything going on. Just, you know, stuff being shut down still and and the lousy weather. That last night, I got done working and we put the kids to bed and kind of just had everything settled for the evening. And it's 8 o'clock or something like that. And I was going to go get milk. We we're, were out of milk. And this snowstorm was hitting. So, like, there's like 40 mile an hour winds, and we were going to get five or six inches of snow. And this is all hitting. And I mentioned to my wife, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to go get milk. And she's like, really? In this weather right now? And <laughs> I tell her, yeah, it'll be, it'll be the, I need an adventure. I need, I need a reason to get out of the house. So, I'm going to go drive through the snow and get milk. And that was my big hurrah. She's like, that's not an adventure. If you really want to make it adventurous, you should hike there. And she was saying that kiddingly. But when she said that, I was like, you're so right. <laughs> So I, at like 8.30 last night, I loaded up a 40-pound backpack and put on winter clothes and hiked a mile and a half to the closest gas station to pick up milk in the snowstorm (laughs) and all the way back. And it was so much fun. I was so out there just like laughing at myself thinking, this is the life. I I needed some reason to get out and do something stupid (laughs) and enjoy the elements. And uh, Uh, that was... How far was that milk run, Mark? Just over a mile and a half there and a mile and a half back, or just under a mile and a half there and back. So three, like two miles and three quarters, two and three quarter nice. miles. It was the best part of my week. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's I, I know I say this to you every time we talk, but you know, people always ask me what, what Mark Kenyon is like. And, and I'm just like, consistently, I'm like, he's just weird. He's just an odd duck. And I love hearing stories like that because people will go, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I have no rebuttal to that. <laughs> I just am what I am, Tony. Yep. No uh, change in now, buddy. Yeah, that's the truth. It's too late for that. So uh so that's my winter state of mind at the moment. But um but yeah, there there are plenty of things that we can be doing in the off season that are either important or just fun. Um so I figured we could share some ideas today. I know that both you and I have done a lot of different things in a lot of different situations throughout the years to 
you know, to help better prepare ourselves for hunting season or, or recharge ourselves leading into the hunting season. And I thought we could just go back and forth and explore some of these ideas, try to think through some things that maybe aren't as obvious. Some of these things are, you know, relatively obvious. Some of these might be a little bit different, um, but give everybody a few things to think about over the next few weeks, the next few months, especially at this time of year. I don't know if, I don't know if this is the same for you, but I'm not a big ice fisher. Uh, so this period here, January, February is, is definitely my slowest point of the entire year. Um, you know, once we get into March, I'm shed hunting and scouting and the once it's April's turkey season. And then I start fishing a lot, May, June, July, and then August, I feel like you're right back and into really, really prepping for deer. Um, so this is that one part of the year where I get a little bit of that time to sit and plan and think, okay yeah, I want to do this and this and, and literally write some stuff down. This is my time when I do those things. So I figured it might be a good idea to get some ideas on everybody's radar if they want to do that kind of planning too. So um, I don't know. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Sounds good to me, man. Do you really tell your buddies that I'm just weird? Is that <laughs> is that really the only thing that comes to mind? <laughs> Does that surprise you? Uh, it's, just, it's lingering, man. It's going to be with me overnight. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, let's let's go through. Let's have this. Let's revisit this at the end of this conversation. Okay. okay. <laughs> maybe you could convince me otherwise. Or maybe we'll get to the end. I'll be like, oh no, yeah, you're right. That's that's <laughs> absolutely right. So, all right. So here's what I want to do. I want to, um, if we don't get totally sidetracked, I want to just go like back and forth. I'm gonna lay out. I know we we I brought to the table five different ideas, and I know you've got five ideas. So I figure I'll kick it off. Kick us off with one. And then we can kind of talk it through, um, explore some ideas, and then I'll pitch it to you and you can share yours and, and we'll just kind of bounce back and forth like that and see where it takes us. Sure. So my first off-season idea for folks, my challenge for folks, and this is a challenge for myself as much as it is for anybody else too, is to do, it's kind of a two-part, I'm cheating here, but it's, it's to do two things. Number one, I would challenge myself and everybody to get permission on at least one more property than you think you need. So it's it's not getting permission on a new property. It's get more than you need. And then secondly, go out and scout a new piece of public land, even if you're not a public land hunter. So my, my challenge is to pick up one more piece of permission than you actually think you need and go find a new piece of public land, even if you don't typically hunt it. I say these these things because, at least in my experience, one of the biggest challenges I've faced over the years comes down to having the right spot. So often just having, being in the right place or having a different option or having a plan B, C, D, those things can make or break a hunt. And so often if you've got some kind of challenge, there's some kind of issue, the easy solution is to go to plan C or go to plan D or have these different options. But I've I've found myself some years having been too lazy or whatever, right? Circumstances where I didn't have enough of those other options and I've always regretted it. So my, what, what I try to do a better job of every year is making sure that doesn't happen. Um, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong when it comes to permission access where these things are fleeting. You can have permission on something and then lose it just before the season, or you might have permission somewhere and then, you know, in past years, it was just you. And then all of a sudden this year, there's five other guys that want to hunt it. Um, or, you know, 
opening day or middle of the rut, all of a sudden a logging crew comes through and starts cutting down everything. You just never know. So it's, it's, I would say a smart thing to always have several backup options in your pocket because there's a lot of unexpected things that happen. And then the same thing goes for having a public land spot. There's another, another one of your options. If you, if you already hunt public land all the time, of course, you know, you need to do that. Um, add another piece of public land to your repertoire. Um, I remember you and I were talking a few months ago, Tony, maybe this is a, I I don't know if this is on your podcast or this one, but we were just talking about, you know, how hunting pressure seemed particularly high on our public land hunts this past year. And, you know, more than ever, it was important to have a bunch of options because there's, there's a lot more people trying to do this kind of stuff. So it's a simple thing. It's something I think a lot of us know. Executing on it is a lot harder than knowing that you should do it. The biggest thing is is actually walking that walk. Um, so that's that's my high level suggestion. Um, I think we can walk through a couple ideas about how to do that. But what do you think about that general idea? I think it's like crazy important for whitetail hunters. I mean, if you you know you mentioned this, but if you have a place you rely on that you don't own then you're just one day closer to potentially losing it. And, you know, maybe some people haven't gone through that, but if you go through that once where you're relying on a spot and it, it changes hands or gets sold or something happens, it makes you realize how important this is. And so, yeah, everybody should have their radar up, keep looking. And, you know, your point with the, the public land thing and, you know, whether you're, you know, kind of like identify as a public land hunter or not, Man, you and I have talked about this before, but there are places I hunt where even though I have access to private ground, I'll choose public because it offers me more room to roam or I think I have a better chance to go have a good hunt or run into a big buck. It's, it's kind of, uh, we've, we've sort of done a disservice in the, in the hunting space where we've, we've made private land always seem like it's so much better and it's just so situational. And so if you're kind of on the fence about that and thinking, I'm, I'm not going to go walk public land in the off season when I've got a private land place to hunt, you don't know what you're going to find and you are going to give yourself options, like you said. So I'm, I'm all for that advice, man. Yeah. You know, another thing to add on to what you just said, well, a lot of times if, if you do rely on some private spots, maybe you do have a dynamite private farm or a couple options that you can hunt that are really great. Um, even if you have that, something we talk a lot about on this podcast is trying to be smart about when you hunt certain places. So, you know, maybe you don't want to go and hunt your very best rut stand 10 times in a row in early October, right? You need to be smart about hunting places at the right times of year and applying that pressure when it's, you know, worth applying that pressure. And at the same time though, you don't, you know, if let's say you've got you know, every weekend of the month of October to hunt. And that's something you really want to do. You don't want to not hunt, even if conditions aren't right, or even if it's too early to go to your best spot. So the way to solve for that isn't to overhunt your best spot in your private farm. It's to have public spots or have other options where you can still go out, have a good time. And maybe you will get into some great hunting. Maybe you'll discover, like you just described, Tony, that this public spot's just as good or better than your private. Um, but take advantage of these opportunities to keep hunting, to keep being outside to, to spread your hunting pressure across multiple places. And that, that makes, it does two things for it. It increases your chances of success because you're out there more often. 
And then it also keeps the pressure on any one place lower. So each time you go back, it's it's still going to be relatively fresh and you're going to learn a whole lot along the way too. So it's just a no-lose proposition as far as I'm concerned. The more spots you've scouted, the more properties you have access to, um, it's only going to help. So this is something that I think every single hunter, no matter if you are a public land savant or shit, even if you own ground, I would challenge you to do this too. I mean, unless you have like 2,000 acres and you never need to go beyond that. Um, most average people that own land maybe have a 40 or an 80. Even if you've got that situation, I'd still encourage you to try to add a couple more places. I just don't think it can hurt you. Um, so yeah. No, and it, I, I want to add on something there quick too. I keep hearing from these these guys out there who, uh, you know, they'll they'll kind of like dissect last season or the last couple seasons, and you know, how many buck tags did I have? How many have I filled? How many encounters did I have? And they're they're guys who are keeping a lot better records than I am. And the the question that comes up a lot is, I want I want to level up, I want to get better, but I feel like I've stalled out. And really, not only is is hunting more ground, even if you're going to public from private, it, it's there, there's some mystery there. There's some enjoyment for having to figure it out. But I firmly believe if you want to be a better overall hunter, you put yourself in new situations. Mm-hmm. And it's easy, you know, when you're on when you're on the private ground you grew up on, that's fun and it's nice to walk out to the same stands. But you can also kind of get stuck in a rut and go, okay, well, the wind's out of the west. I sit the the corner stand or, you know, whatever. But if you have to walk into these new areas or you give yourself the opportunity to walk into a new place, it's a different kind of hunt. And you can you can really level up doing that for yourself. Yeah, 100% agree with that. That's that's this, I don't know if it's the right word for it, but if you're looking for a hack for getting better at deer hunting, that's it right there. Just throw yourself into new situations and you'll be forced to to get better and to learn fast. Yep. Um, real quick before we move on to your thing, uh, do you have any one tip for getting permission? If, the, if, if someone's listening and thinking to themselves, okay, I'm going to try to do that, get some more permission uh, deal that Mark's ranting about here. Uh, any one quick piece of advice there? Well, you know, we, we know how to find the the public. So finding private is just tap, tap your resources, tap your network. I mean, my, I have twin nine-year-olds and occasionally they'll talk about one of their classmates who's, who's got a little hobby farm or something around here. And you, you know, like the next question is, do they have any woods? Do they hunt? <laughs> like just, you, you never know what you're going to find. And I've, I've gotten permission to hunt places so randomly throughout my life. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes you just meet somebody at the gym or something and they've got, you know, they live on a 40 and they don't hunt. Um, they're just, just be open, you know, real open to any of those, those keywords, you know, that, that might come up in conversation that might get you in the right path to some more permission. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea. The, I'll, I'll add that that's always my option a, what you just described, but if all that fails and you're still looking, um, and you have to start doing the cold knocking on doors, trying to get permission kind of thing. That's, you know, it's not easy, but it certainly can lead to access. I will just offer, I mean, we could talk for a full hour about this one thing, but I'll just give you one piece of advice when it comes to cold knocking on doors. It's a numbers game. So you you have to go into it realizing that you're going to get a lot of no's. So if you're, you know, if you start the day, just remember this, it's already a no on all the properties you're planning on knocking on, right? It's a no right now. So the only thing that's going to happen from here on out as you ask people, is you've got a chance for it to get better. You could get a yes. So 
remember that and remember it's a numbers game and that if you have to plan at least the way i look at it you've got to set yourself up to get that yes by going through a bunch of people so i put together a list of i try to have at least 10 places that i'm going to ask in a given day so that you know i can have a chance you know there's a there's a 10% chance that i'll get one yes out of those 10 and i do think that that very first place you knock on the door that's the toughest at least for me I don't enjoy that kind of awkward interaction. I'm relatively a hermit, so I'm not naturally wanting to go and knock on a bunch of doors and talk to random people. So that takes me out of my comfort zone. But that first door, if I can get past that first door and have that conversation, oh, it's not that bad. We chit-chat a little bit. They said no, but they're nice people. The next one's a little bit easier, and the third one's easier, and the fourth one, and by the time you get going, it's a piece of cake once you get to the end because you're just rolling with it. You have momentum. There's that whole snowball effect. So, so that's my suggestion is plan a whole list of properties, go through it all in one fell swoop. You'll feel a lot better as you get going. And, and a lot of times you'll end up with a yes or two. So, um, that's, that's my quick tip on permission. Solid. Solid. Uh, okay, Tony, what would, uh, what would your next idea be for the off season? So kind of just to play off of that permission thing, I mean, I, I realized probably your audience here there's probably a way higher percentage of people who travel to hunt than maybe the general deer hunting population. But I'm, you know, for my job, I'm always researching, you know, traveling hunts over the road hunts. I know you are too. And I, I always encourage people, even if they don't, they're not really in the traveling lifestyle, they're not, you know, super geek to go buy a non-resident tag, do some off-season research on something. Just, just think about like, where would I really like to hunt? Is that Iowa whitetails or maybe I want to hunt Western river bottom whitetails at some point and start doing the research on that. It'll, it, it, it's kind of like that you just talked about, like knocking on that first door. When you start to just get the logistics down and you go, even though I'm not planning on it, I know I could get a tag there and I know the season dates run from here to here and there's X amount of public land in the Western half of the state it starts to give you a little bit of confidence and you kind of have, I call it like a back pocket hunt. Like there's, there's States every year that I don't intend to go to, but I've, I've spent some time this time of year researching them because once in a while I'll go out, you know, like Minnesota is a one buck state. I might, I might kill a buck opening night. It, it happens pretty often for me, or at least opening weekend. That's, that's almost off the table after that. And so I might've gone into the season thinking, well, I've got three months here to hunt and it's over in a day. And if you have some of this research done on a potential other state or other zone or region to hunt, you at least have that option to go, you know, I could fall back on that, maybe take a long weekend or look at the schedule and say, oh, the kids are on MEA over October or whatever, and and make something like that happen, or at least be a little bit closer to experiencing that. I like that. And you're, you're kind of, even if you don't have to use it this year, it, you're kind of working that muscle. You're getting comfortable with figuring that kind of stuff out and doing that research and and next year when you do need to actually follow through on something like that you're you're halfway there already now would you would you suggest even going so far as as scouting or e-scouting and, and looking at pieces of ground on the maps and marking spots and, and doing all that too even if you're not 100 percent planning on doing a trip like that yeah and I and I suggest doing it in a way uh, you know, you and I have talked a million times about this, but I'm, I, I start a lot of my e-scouting around water, looking for water yeah, and, or so, you know, something that you, that's kind of in your wheelhouse. 
And that step, you know, when you know you can get the tag and, you know, the season's open these days and you start looking and you pull up on X and you're like, oh, this is, there's 2000 acres of public land. That's only four hours from my house. And there's a nice river running through it and you start digging in. That's what really kind of gets you over the edge. And it's, it, it, I, maybe this isn't for everybody, but I know when I find something that really gets my spidey senses tingling, I want to go. Like it, there's, <laughs> you just find some stuff where you're like, I have to see that in person at some point. And that's like a, it's like a reinforcing system because it, it, it plays into your scouting at home too. If you're going to take our advice and go find some public down the road and it just, it feeds, it feeds the experience level a little bit more. And, you know, if you, even if you aren't planning, like you said, to go on those trips, if you start doing that e-scouting, it, you know, it might not be this year. It might be two years where you just finally talk yourself into it or you get into a different space at your job where you get a little bit more income, a little bit more PTO, and you've got those layers of research to fall back on. It makes the whole process so much better. And like, I always kind of look at this, dude, we're, we're bow hunters primarily, you know, we're deer hunters. We're optimists at heart. Like what's more optimistic than just being like, man, someday I'm going there and I'm going to go kill a great big buck on that land. Yeah. Uh, I like that. And you know, something I, I know you do this a lot and it, it's something that might fit into certain people's schedules. I know that you often will tie in a turkey hunt with a scouting trip. So if someone wants to do what we're discussing, even if they don't think they've got time or the money to put, you know, 10 days on the calendar in November for a big out of state hunt, maybe they could do a weekend turkey hunt in April and, you know, do all this research like you described for someday. And then you want to get a couple days of turkey hunting and why not do that couple days of turkey hunting at this place where you're starting to do some scouting and thinking, and then you're just slowly little by little building this database while still having some fun too. So that whenever it is time to go out there and do the deer hunt, um, you've got, you've got double the amount to, to kind of look back on. Um, so if you want to level up, that's another suggestion, I guess, or tie it with a shed hunt too. That's another thing. Um, it just seems like an easy way to have a good time with less of a time commitment, less of a budget commitment and, and just kind of continue what you're describing. Yeah, that's a, that's like my go-to method. My entire spring's planned around that already this year, but I will say this, this is like, uh, if you, if you're not, if you're on the fence about maybe going on a deer hunt somewhere and you say, you know what, I'm going to go out there with my buddies. We're going to camp. We're going to turkey hunt. This is exactly like if you're not sure if you want to buy a puppy and you go look at a litter of puppies, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're freaking buying one, right? Yeah. So if you, if you go, unless the trip just turns into a disaster, which it probably won't, but I promise you, if you're like, I'm kind of, you know, I want to dip my toe in the pool. I, I kind of want to go travel, hunt a little bit. If you do that turkey trip and you see the logistics and you have a good time tent camping and running and gunning birds, you're going back to deer hunt. I, uh, I can see how that would be the case. No doubt about that. Oh, man. All right. Uh, Should we move on to number three? Yeah. All right. So my next suggestion, and this doesn't apply to everybody because some people don't hunt like this, but I know you and I do at least, and and more and more and more people do this. Um, My suggestion is to fine-tune, like absolutely perfect, double down, become obsessive about perfecting your mobile hunting setup. So that could be either your climbing sticks and your portable tree stand or your sticks in your saddle setup, whatever you use. If you're someone who hunts public land or, you know, private land, but you move around a lot and you're mobile 
and aggressive in that kind of way. If you do that, I I don't think I don't think there, there's there's few things more important than getting really good at doing that up and down process, doing it quietly, doing it efficiently, doing it relatively quickly, um, and that takes a couple things. That takes practice. So you know making sure you know the right process for getting up and down and you know having a good set of like an order of operations. I know there's a lot of people, especially new people. If you're a newer hunter and there's a lot of new hunters joining the fold right now and they're jumping into podcasts like this or they're jumping onto YouTube and they're seeing people using these things and then they buy some sticks and they buy a saddle and they head out into the woods and if they try to do this on you know, November 1st and they head out in the morning, it's dark out and they're trying to get set up in the tree for the first time. It's a disaster. Like that's a nightmare scenario. Even, you know, even doing it during the day in the afternoon of October 1st, that's a disaster. So, uh, and I can even tell you, even like the first time I usually go, like the first hunt of the season, even though I've been doing this for years and years, usually the first hunt, I'm kind of like a disaster. (laughs) There's always some like, ah, shit, I forgot this. Or I, how did I do that? So, Take a little time in the off season to just fine tune your process. Look at what you do and say, is there some way I could do this better? Like, do I have to put both sticks on my hip and one over my shoulder? Could I actually use some different system or a different clip? Do I need to go up the tree and then come back down and grab my backpack? Or could I wear my backpack? Or could I have a rope tied down to my backpack? Um, there's so many different ways to do it, and there are a lot of different videos out there demonstrating how each different individual does. Um, so there's no shortage of resources for you to go online and see how other people do it. Uh, I'd suggest that you just think about your process. Think about your tools. So look at your tree stand and your sticks and your tow ropes and your bow and your backpack and all that and think through, you know, how can I eliminate any noises? Uh, should I put some tape on my tree stand? Should I tape the the crossbar on my tree stand or on the stick? Uh, is there something that last year on my rut hunt, I noticed like this damn stick always twe- or always creaks when I get all my weight on it. Is that something you remember from last year? Well, now's the time to get rid of that squeak or now's the time to add that sticky um, surface to the top of your stick so your foot doesn't slide off it like it did that one time in December last year. You know what I mean? There's There's all these little things we can do to make that setup more efficient and effective and quiet and for mobile deer hunters i think that's you know it's it's not make or break all the time but sometimes it could be there could be a situation where you sneak in for a hunt and you've worked really hard to do all this scouting and to do this preparation and you've found where this buck is and you've snuck in there on public land a mile and a half back and you think that you know there's probably a buck bedded back in this spot and you sneak in there and you're setting up and you think man I bet you if there's if this buck's in here or if there's some deer in here, they're probably 60 to 70 yards away and you're sneaking up in there. And then if you drop your stick or you, you know, forget something that's down at the ground and then you have to climb all the way down your sticks and grab it again. Or if you get sloppy or if your tree stands creaky, whatever it is, sometimes those little things can come back to really nip you in the butt. So now is a time to think about those little things. If you're if you're sitting here in the house like I am and it's really cold outside, and you're so bored that you're hiking a mile and a half to the gas station, why not use that time to tape up your stand or make one of these little tweaks? Um, that's that's a thought that I have, and it's something I'm trying to do this year a little bit better too. Um, does that resonate, Tony? 
Oh, big time. And I, you know, I would say on that note, it's, it's really cool how much information there is out there now for the, the mobile hunter. But I would say, especially addressing people who are new to it, you, you alluded to this at the beginning, but there is a learning curve to this stuff. Like it's, there's, there's no way around that. You gotta, you gotta learn how to get good with it. And that's what you're talking about. But I would say that it, like, there isn't a one size fits all answer to this stuff. So yeah. some people are out there and they're just taking the, the elk hunter approach where it's like, I want as little weight as possible. And they're, they're doing everything they can to pare that down. You might not be going that far in, or you might, you might require a little bit more comfort to enjoy this stuff. And so uh, just understand that when you're, when you're taking in some of this information that what somebody else uses, it might be perfect for them, but you might not need it, or you might not be comfortable or feel safe with it. Like if, if it comes down to maybe carrying a couple extra pounds of weight in there and feeling better, or having a better standoff on your stick, something like that, go that route. Like do what's going to make it comfortable and feel safe for you. And this is a good time to really reach research that stuff in an honest way. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and it is easy. You, I think you could easily get lost in all the ideas out there. You could easily get overwhelmed with it or feel pressure to do it a certain way or, or just almost get paralyzed with, you know, paralysis analysis kind of thing going on. So yeah, take these ideas, look at these things, but filter it through your own experience. That's, that's probably the most important thing of all. Um, Big time. So what's, what's, what's next on your mind? So, you know, kind of on that note, I mean, the, the mobile hunting and, you know, especially the public land thing, but it's, it's, it's relevant on private land in a lot of situations too, is, you know, one thing that I noticed in my life, I've, I've talked about this on my podcast a whole bunch of times, but, you know, I quit drinking eight years ago and started working out and the, I did it for every reason, but hunting, I didn't, it didn't matter to me about hunting. It didn't feel like it was going to have any effect and it changed my, my desire to hunt, uh, in a way that I didn't see coming. And it, it changed how I looked at these mobile hunts and keeping myself in shape and then really getting into shape for elk hunting. It made me realize that a lot of these public land hunts, they function like a little mini elk hunt as far as like physically and mentally. And so this time of year when, you know, when we're talking about, there's nothing, nothing to do, man, going to the gym is, is huge. And if you can, if you can take care of your body a little bit, your mind will come along for the ride too. And it is, I, I honestly think it's the single best decision I've ever made for not only becoming more successful as a public land deer hunter, but enjoying it a lot more. So, so are you saying I have to quit drinking? I'm not saying you have to quit drinking. I'm just saying <laughs> I had to. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Yeah. Mileage varies on that one, buddy, but I, I have to. So, so I'm right there with you. I think that's, um, I think. I think it's something that's overlooked or I think historically that was something that got overlooked within the whitetail hunting world a little bit. I think it's definitely picked up steam in recent years as people are seeing the payoffs that you can have, especially if you do this public land stuff like you described or this mobile style of hunting that's definitely a little bit more physically demanding. Um, but you said something that I think really has some truth to it, which is that if you do this physical stuff, if you work on the physical side of things, It'll bring your mind along with it, and and there's something important there. I found that having 
and and we're getting into the woo woo stuff, not woo woo, but a little bit more woo woo that some people uh, want. Um, I had someone leave a comment. I, I don't really read my podcast reviews often at all. I probably haven't read them in the last year. I used to when I first started, but more recently, I've just gotten to the point where, you know, I've been doing this thing a long time. You either like it or you hate me. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees, it's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bowl staying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food is going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Someone left a comment about how I've gotten like too woo-woo or into mindset stuff too much, and they're like, yeah, he's, he's getting crazy or something. So maybe there's truth to that. But, um, but when you say the mind will come along with it, I do think there's something to be said about the discipline it takes to, to get and stay physically fit. Like that requires a mindset and it requires a, a, a certain um, ability to, to stick to something and to set either a goal or a, uh, some kind of accountability for yourself. And if you do that, it, it strengthens your mind too. And I think that helps a lot come hunting season that mental toughness that you have to build up if you're going to wake up early every morning and go hit the gym or whatever it is. Um, I think those things all kind of add up as these little layers that, that put you in the position you need to be come November when you're on your big rut hunt 
on public land and you got to grind it out for seven days or whatever, all these things do help out. And it's hard to put a, you know, a price tag on exactly how worth it it is, but I can certainly tell you it is worth it to some degree. And these things add up. Um, so, so yeah, like I, I'm trying every year to get better at that too. And, and so one of my goals this year, this is something I do every, for the last few years, I've been trying to get, been trying to do this and some different excuse gets in the way and I can't, make an excuse for it other than that I let something, you know, bust me off of that. But I try to have a solid morning routine where I get up, you know, at least an hour, hour and a half before the family does. And then I get out and I do some kind of workout. And then I'm able to then get into my office and and do a few things to organize my day. And just that simple routine, get up early, get a workout in and then plan your day. If I can do that, the whole rest of my day just feels like it's I don't know, like I have jet fuel for the rest of the day. But if I don't do that, it just feels like I'm groggy. And that, I think there's something to it just, I I don't even know where I'm going with this, Tony, but I feel like there's something to that that helps you down the line. If you can have this kind of mental fitness to do a physical thing like you're describing, it just sets you up so that you can handle a lot more come hunting season, come whatever thing it is that you're trying to do does that does that make sense or did i go off the deep end no 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 it's you didn't you didn't describe it very well i'll help you out here <laughs> but what, what you're you're saying two things there like the di- the discipline part's the easy part right like it's easy to kind of equate you know if you're if you're disciplined enough to get yourself in shape and and you'll be more disciplined in the woods, you know? And I, I always look at that as like simple stuff because we've sold this message in the hunting space that you got to be like a super badass fitness guru to kill elk or carry them out of the mountains or get up the mountain or in the whitetail space, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's always tied to just like the physical requirements. And what it is, is like, man, can you, can you, you know, get up for that alarm five days in a row? and sit all day can you go out and you know go on that over the road hunt and stay positive when it rains on your tent for three days in a row and the hunting sucks like that's that's where that discipline really ties in it's not nearly as much about being able to you know throw a 200 pound deer on your shoulders and carry it out of the michigan swamps yeah there's it's it's different um the the other thing that you're talking about there, you know, getting into the the routine and, and taking care of your workout in the morning and feeling better all day, I dude, I really think it's that's tied to just doing something for yourself that makes you feel good. And you know, I I've talked about this a lot, but like when you're when you're at a certain stage of your life and you got little kids to take care of and you've got you know your job and your your spouse and you you do a lot of stuff for somebody else. <laughs> like yeah. you, you, you fill your day up doing things that you don't really want to do, but you do because you're responsible. And that one, you know, hour workout, whatever, whatever you take for that, that's for you. Like nobody else really benefits from that. That's just purely this little selfish thing you want to do that makes you feel good. And I think just in society right now, we've been, we're kind of like, we're relying on a whole bunch of stuff that's supposed to make us feel good or, or the illusion of happiness around it. And it doesn't make us feel good. And that just one act of doing something for yourself every day or, you know, four or five times a week actually does make you feel good. It, it helps your, your headspace. Yep. I'm, uh, I'm right there with it. And thank you for articulating that better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I've got you here, Tony. Um, uh, Let's let's dive into my next one, which is a little bit more tactile or tac- tactical. 
um, as far as something you can do in the woods that I think can help you in a lot of situations. Um, and this is more applicable for people that hunt the same places over and over, like a private land place. Um, but something I like to do as much as I can on the places I have permission on, or like the back 40 that I hunted, you know, that we owned, um, is utilizing mock scrapes. And that's something you can do in the off season that will still benefit you come hunting season. So what I would suggest where you can, where it's, you know, where you're able to do this is make a mock scrape at every one of your tree stand sites that you plan to hunt. Um, I say this not because I think that's something that's going to attract a deer magically to your tree stand. I say it because there's no downside to having a scrape within range of a tree stand. There's, there's only potential upside. It's no guarantee, but I don't think there's anything bad that can come out of there being a licking branch within range of your tree. So let me just explain why. Um, number one, hopefully you're in a place where, like if you're setting up in a location, hopefully you're set up in a certain location for a lot of reasons above and beyond that scrape. I, I, I would never set in a spot just because there's a scrape. I'm hoping there's like a number of other things that lead me to believe a deer will pass through here. But sometimes every once in a while, you might have a deer that comes into an area and knows there's a scrape there and specifically wants to check it. So you've got some small percentage chance that could help. I'll take that little small potential of a bonus. But the bigger thing I'm looking for here is that if I have a real scrape or a mock scrape within range of my tree stand, there's a chance that a buck that's passing by at 40 might come an extra five yards closer because that scrape's there. Or there might be a buck that's passing through that was going to be walking full speed the entire time. But because there's that scrape or mock scrape there, he'll pause for a couple seconds and sniff that branch. And those two things, getting a buck to come a few yards closer to me or to pause for a couple seconds, that can make all the difference when it comes to killing a buck with a bow. So it's, it's a simple thing. It's not hard to do. And maybe you already have a scrape near your locations and you don't need to make one. But if you've got a place where you don't know of a scrape being within range, just go out there, make sure there's a licking branch, kick out the dirt, and deer check these things all year round. They don't kick up the dirt and make that part of the scrape in the off season. But if you've ever ran a camera on a scrape in January or June or August, you'll see many deer still stop at these scrapes and sniff and, and rub their glands on that licking branch. So they're visiting it all year round. So you can make one now, and deer will continue to visit it off and on. And then once you get into hunting season, if you happen to be passing by, then go ahead and kick up the dirt a little bit if it already hasn't been, and that'll just kickstart things again, and you'll get that little extra added potential of a benefit. Again, it's not. this isn't like some secret magic thing that's all going to sudden have bucks running to your tree. Um, but... One time out of 10, it might make the difference. And damn it, I'd be really happy to give that one buck out of 10 uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise. So I can tell you one quick anecdote where this helped. Um, we had a, and this, this is a situation where there was a, this is on my mind. I didn't create this mock scrape, but I did set up a tree stand within range of this old scrape because I was hoping for something like this. Um, when you and I were hunting together, Tony, in the back 40, I had set up a tree inside this area I called the honey hole and overlooked this ridge with a bunch of tall grasses and then various little clumps of cedars. And 
one of the reasons why I liked this tree that I ended up choosing was because it was in range of a big cedar that had just been ripped up with scrapes. You could see all around it, and it was just a spot that I knew that year after year, bucks were making scrapes under these branches. And so I thought to myself, I wasn't going to hunt here because of that specific tree. I wasn't hunting here because, oh, there's going to be bucks flocking to this tree to make scrapes. But I did know that there was a lot of reasons for bucks to pass through here. And if a buck passes through here with all these scrapes underneath this cedar tree, there's a darn good chance he's going to stop here and, and give it a sniff or take a, you know, take a piss in it and do his thing. And maybe that gets me the shot or maybe that gets me the extra five seconds I need to get ready. And lo and behold, when that drop time buck came rolling through the honey hole and I grunted to him, he turned, he came my way and he stopped at that tree and gave me the time I needed to grab my bow, get turned around. We also had a cameraman, of course, so then he had to get ready. And that buck stopped and made a scrape and did the whole thing. And it gave us the time we needed to get in position, get ready, figure out what was happening. And and I could have taken the shot at him at that scrape if he'd turned my way. Uh, he didn't end up turning my way. He walked a little bit, and then I got a shot closer. But that was just one recent example where a scrape within range was really helpful in that kind of way. And you can you can make those scrapes be in range by taking some time this off season and, and creating those. So uh, so that's an idea. I don't know, Tony. What do you do? You ever think about that? I know on public land, that's not something you either can or is practical to do all that often. But um, what do you think? I mean, I, I like it because it's. I like your your strategy of first do no harm and it's, it's not going to hurt you at all to do that. And when you, when you start putting stuff like that around your stand or paying attention to it or enhancing a little bit, you know, like, like you said, with a, a scrape, we tend to focus on what they kick out and that's that, you know, big dished out truck hood size scrape gets our attention, but that licking branch is where it's at. And that, that communication is so important to deer. And so those, that kind of option is, you know, you, you might not have the ability to put in a food plot or, you know, build a pond or really enhance a property, but the odds are pretty decent. If you're running on private land, you could at least put in uh, a mock scrape by your stand and, and try to at least position those deer if they come in. So yeah, I like it. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's simple, but sometimes add a bunch of little simple things together and it, and it becomes something substantial. Um, and I guess I should, I should add, for those people who are newer, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about when I say a mock scrape. Um, I'll give you the quick 30-second cliff notes on what I mean here. These, you know, a, a scrape is this communication hub, like you just described, Tony, where deer will come and leave a bunch of kind of chemical signals that say stuff like, hey, I was here, or hey, who else was here? Um, and they kick up a big patch of dirt, and they always do this underneath an overhanging branch that should be, you know, leaning down at about deer head level. So let's call that three and a half to four and a half feet high off the ground, maybe. Um, and so if you want to create one of those, all you got to do is, is find a branch like that or bend a branch down. So it's at that height and kick up some dirt underneath it. Try to do this without leaving a bunch of human scent around. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of different ideas around whether scent matters or not, but I, I take a leak in a scrape when I make a mock scrape. Um, I've seen research that shows that that has no negative and triggers activity just the same as if a buck had peed in it. Um, and then just make sure that licking branch, that branch that overhangs, make sure that's conspicuous. From what I gather, that's one of the most important things is that 
it stands out from everything else. Um, if you do that and there's this little, you know, snapped off twigs at the end or something, you're going to get deer that will catch sight of that patch of dirt and that licking branch and want to check it out. And then after one deer does that, then another deer wants to come check that out and smell that. And it builds off from there. So real quick, that's the, the high level overview of, of what a scrape is and, and how to make a mock scrape. Do you add anything else, Tony? No, I mean, that's, that's what they are, man. <laughs> yes, that, that's what they are. Uh, okay. What's, what's, what's next? Um, I would say, you know, kind of on, you know, to, to go from that to the style that I tend to hunt, you know, that, that's a specific, your, your mock scrape thing is, is pretty specific to private land. And it actually like a great thing for small property hunters. You know, if you're, if you're kind of on the other end and you've got some bigger properties to roam or you're more of a public land hunter, at least I know the last several years I've started to, to scout like trail cameras don't exist. And I still run a bunch of trail cameras where I can, but I try to sort of mitigate how important the findings are with the old school style of, uh, a lot of summertime glassing, you know, a lot of late winter, uh, covering ground, reading the terrain, looking at last year's sign, doing a lot of winter scouting and just use trail cameras as like a fun bonus that might clue me into something, but to just so I like, it's kind of a self preservation thing. So I don't rely on them so much. And I realized after I started doing this, that just my, my overall scouting game felt like it got a lot better and I just enjoyed it more. Cause I wasn't just sitting there going, okay, well that, that camera has been soaking two weeks. I want to go check it. I, I had other things to do to go glass in the evenings and just go take a walk at certain times and go look for sign. And it just, I, I feel like it's a good way to go about really getting a grasp on what the deer are doing. What's What's like one thing that someone listening could do this year when it comes to these scouting sessions that would be, I don't know if next level is the right word, but how do you, how, you alluded to this other term like level up. How do you level up your scouting? Because every, everybody that likes to deer hunt knows you're supposed to scout, knows that you should scout, and they probably do some amount of it. Um, but what's some way we can take it up a notch um, or something you found that's a little bit different that has actually helped you more than you expected. Anything come to mind? Um, you know, I would just say that I, th- I think for me, the most valuable scouting time I spend is in March and it's because I absolutely am willing to go walk a lot of miles and look at the woods as bare as it'll ever be. And really, you know, we, we focus a lot on, uh, you know, last season sign and, you know, where, where would you hang a, a stand around these rubs or, you know, how would you sneak in and hunt them? But what it really does is give you like a clear picture of how the terrain works. And so even if you hunt, uh, you know, where, where I live is relatively flat. And so you don't have a lot of traditional pinch points and funnels that are, that are terrain based, but you even see these little, you know, five foot differences in elevation. And you start to see not only how the sign works, but how some of the winter travels been, you might see this, the trails from last year, if the snow is melted and it just gives you this picture of how the deer used, used the woods that you're going to be hunting more fully. Like it's just, you can just read it easier, I guess. And I think, I think we kind of overlook that message a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, another thing I've been trying to do, um, is 
it is is actively try to ask the question of why when I see something. So when I'm out there in the woods and I'm walking around and I see something that catches my eye, a trail or a scrape or a line of rubs or something, um, I want to, in that moment, take a second to think about why is this here and why was this made this past year? If it's if it's sign that seems to have made been made recently, I guess that's that's question number one is okay, when was this made? When did I what's this from? And then why was it here? It's really easy, I think, to think you're scouting just by like walking around and looking at a bunch of stuff. And then you say, well, I walked around and looked at a bunch of stuff. I scouted. I think that that counts for something, but it could be a lot more effective if you scout and you you learn some stuff while you're out there that really sticks. I think that's a trick is like figure out how to make the stuff stick. So literally putting waypoints on your maps, that's a way to make things stick. Writing stuff down is a way to make things stick. But taking a second to look at something and then think about it, that's another way to make it stick. So sit there and you've got this rub line maybe. Let's say I'm walking along, I see a big rub. I take 10 more steps, I see another big rub. Take another 10 steps, see another big rub. I'm going to say, okay, I just found this rub line. Why is this here? Why did this buck come through here? What were the habitat features present last year because this looks like these rubs were made at some point last season they're they're fresh enough that it was sometime this past fall all right well let me think about it there's this cornfield here to my right that's down the bottom all right so it looks like this rub line was heading down towards this cornfield okay he was heading to feed on corn all right well where is this coming from well it looks like you know there's this saddle in the ridge I wonder, yeah, it kind of looks like he probably must have been up there and came down off that saddle. So he probably passed through here because there was a low point in this ridge. And why was he up on that ridge? Well, let me think about that. I know there's this thicket up there, you know, three quarters of the way up where there's a bunch of blowdowns and there was some cutting five years ago. I wonder if he was in there. Maybe he was checking that bedding area for does. or Maybe that's where he was bedded. And, And just, I'm not saying any one of those things is going to be absolutely true. And you're not necessarily going to know that when you're sitting there and thinking about this, but just the taking the time to think through it and, and try to ask yourself those questions and do that exercise, I guess. I think that is a helpful way to, to get a bigger bang for your buck on those scouting hours you're putting in. Um, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it, it helps you just, you know, once again, kind of layer in that experience. And I, I always think about, like, a, you know, a good example would be if you, if you like to hunt rivers or, you know, hunt waterways and you think about a bluff coming down to a river and the kind of pinch point it might create, like you can run into that in so many States in so many different places. Something that is, is like real close to that, like that you might run into at home. So you head out on the road and you're like, okay, well, where am I going to go? Where am I going to find deer? The more you spend looking at stuff like that, or like your saddle, you know, on a, on a ridge, like you talked about these, these deer do the same thing in a lot of different places. And so the more, the more you get out and you see those, those really kind of unique terrain features that make them go one way or the other. They, they tend to choose to go under this one or over this one or however they use it. It, 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 it applies to a lot of places you'll hunt and yeah. it can just make you, you know, you, you can kind of get that feeling like, Oh, I've been there and done that. Like when you see it in a new place. Yeah. Well, you talked about that spidey sense that you, that you've got sometimes. And there's a lot of other people who will just talk about, they'll know someone, a friend or 
I don't know, someone they follow on the internet, like, man, that guy's just got like the feel for it. Or there's, he has this intuition, just like knows how to set up. Um, oftentimes it's, it's just this, it's, you've yeah. seen these situations enough times and you've thought them through enough times that your brain now just naturally recognizes these patterns. It's, it's seen it enough that without even really needing to think it through all the way through, uh, you'll be able to recognize something and say, oh yeah, this is, this is where he'd pass through. And maybe, you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't be the case, but give it enough time, answer these questions, study these things, look for those patterns. And then it, it all of a sudden you'll get these light bulb moments, even if you're in a totally different state or five years later. So, uh, so yeah, I think this stuff, it can really pay off. Um, let's move on to another one, I think. Um, and this is, this is a, taking another turn. I've got an idea here, a suggestion here that is just one specific example of something you can do when it comes to preparing in the off season with your bow. So if you're a bow hunter, I think it's pretty obvious to most everybody that a big part of your off season preparation should be practice. Get a lot of practice in with your bow. Really make sure that thing is a part of you, that you're really comfortable, um, We've talked in the past, Tony, about various challenges that both of us have had over the years with target panic or blowing a shot or making a mistake or something going wrong. There's there's just so many parts of bow hunting that can go wrong in those final seconds or that final minute. Um, so don't skimp on the practice in the off season. But I, I want to just mention one specific thing that maybe isn't thought about all the time. And my idea here is something that's top of mind for me because I dealt with this challenge this past year. So it's something that I'm specifically thinking about now. And that is training to get stuck at full draw. So when I say that, I mean, there's many situations where you might be out there bow hunting and you draw back because you think you're about to get a shot. And then for some reason, you can't get that shot. Either the deer is staring at you or the deer stops and he's behind a tree and you can't shoot. Um, and now you're stuck holding your bow back and you don't want to draw down again because that would make a bunch of you know, movement or maybe noise or maybe that buck's staring at you and you know he'll see you if you draw down. So being able to handle that moment and stay at full draw for as long as possible but still be able to execute a successful shot when the moment comes, that's really important. Um, and it's something though like in our typical practice routines for a lot of people at least I think, myself included, it might be something that you're not usually practicing for, right? When I'm behind this house shooting, I draw back, I settle in, I shoot. I grab another arrow, I draw back, I settle in, I shoot. And if I don't proactively think to train for something else, you know, it's, it's really easy just to get in that pattern and have fun shooting your bow and, and not ever practice for this one scenario that might happen once every couple of years, but when it does happen, you'll really wish you had practiced for it. So uh, you've been in that situation before, I'm sure, right, Tony? Oh, big time. Yeah. I uh, I mean, for me, this past year it happened um, when that buck I was after Tran, we talked about this on, I don't know, in November when you were here hunting with me, when I was talking about how I missed him, I got in a situation where he went into this thicket and I drew back on him and then I found one tiny little minuscule hole that I, I shouldn't have tried to shoot through, but I decided I was going to try. And I was at full draw for a long time waiting for him to get to that hole. And so it was an ill-advised shot to take it all. Like I shouldn't have taken it. We've, I've already 
dove into that plenty. Um, but on top of that, I was also at full draw for a really, really long time. And so I was not in a good position to even execute on this tough shot given that. So it was a series of mistakes compounded on each other um, and I blew it. So this year, I want to make sure that I'm going to be better prepared for that situation again. So there's there's two ways that that I know of to, to deal with this. There's a bunch of different ways probably, but a couple things that I've thought of. One is something I've done in the past and one is something that I read about and I thought it was a good idea. So one is just the simple exercise of drawing back your bow with an arrow on it, aiming at the target, ideally a 3D target, but whatever, aim at the target and hold and hold it until you cannot hold any longer. So you're just drawing and holding your bow back until you just can't do any more and then let down and then draw back and do the same thing and do that a few times every time you practice. In a perfect world, you would do that a lot every time you practice. If you could dedicate the last 10 minutes or something of your practice session to doing stuff like that, you're really going to build up some serious, um, you know, I don't know if it's significant muscle, but that will help. Um, that's what I have done in the past. And I've also, the reason why I started doing that in the first place was that this is an exercise also to help with target panic, just learning to draw back and float on a target without punching the trigger is a great exercise to just get better at feeling comfortable in those moments. So there's kind of a double benefit here. Um, but real quick, one other idea I read about was something that Randy Ulmer wrote about once. And he had talked about the exercise of not just the holding back, but the drawing back and doing that over and over. So yeah, he, he was basically saying that at the end of your practice session, draw back your bow, draw back down. Draw it back, bring it back, let it back down. Draw back, let it back down. And do that as many times as you possibly can until you literally can't draw your bow back anymore. So do that to failure. And that will build up so much of the important muscle um, in your shoulder and back that um, that's another way to kind of build up the necessary, um, the necessary ability to maintain that full draw for a long period of time. So those are two little exercises you could try to train for this. Um, I don't know, Tony, have you ever kind of thought about this in your training regimen? Is there any other suggestions you would have? Well, you know, the other way to address this is just to dial down your draw weight, you know, True. and, <laughs> and <laughs> because it's, it's always good to build that muscle memory and work on that. You know, I mean, it, whether you shoot 70 pounds or 50, doesn't matter. It's, it, it's always good to work on that. Like you and Randy, uh, kind of talked about, but I would say the other aspect of this is just to be honest, if you're not going to do this or you don't think you're going to get yourself in a position where, you know, I, yeah, I'm not going to have to hold on a buck for a minute. Like, well, maybe, maybe, but maybe not. And if you're not physically ready for that, uh, because you're drawing 70 and you'd be way more comfortable at 60, maybe think about backing off. I mean, I really think with today's, how efficient bows are today and, you know, the general range we're shooting at deer, um, it's kind of unnecessary to be, it, it's absolutely unnecessary to be overbowed, but a lot of us could back off, you know, a turn or two or three and drop down, you know, five to like nine pounds of, of draw weight and have a much more enjoyable shooting experience and just, just sort of shortcut that way to be able to hold longer. Yeah. And like you said, it, it, I think it helps in a lot of aspects of your shooting process, not just the whole stuck a draw, but I think everything becomes a lot easier the less you're holding back and 
unless you, you probably know more about this, is there any downside to that? Like, is there any, is there, if you make it so easy to hold back that you're not even having to think about it, is there any risk of like creeping forward or something funky going on with your shot process? Um, I'm, I'm just simply curious. I, to, at first glance, no. I don't see any downside, but. No, um, you know, you're sacrificing a little bit of energy, right? I mean, you're putting less into the arrow. So that's, that's the downside, but you know, it's not like, you know, we should, we should probably clarify this. It's not like you're going to go from, you know, let's say being able to really hold well for 10 or 15 seconds. Now all of a sudden you're not going to be able to just sit there for three minutes. You know, it might, it might buy you another five or 10 or 15 seconds of, of good comfort, but it's not going to be, you know, what, what you're, what you're going to do with your average bow in the, in the draw weight window, isn't going to make it vastly different, but we'll make everything more comfortable. And, you know, you talk about how you draw, like, you know, I, whenever I practice, I always like the one thing I always think about is drawing straight back to my face while I'm aiming at the target. Like, because that's what I want to do when I'm in the woods. I don't want to sky that bow, you know, or if I'm in a blind, I, I want it to come back very naturally in a slow measured draw and not any fast herky jerky movements. And so lowering your draw weight a little bit just makes that easier. Yeah. So just in case people don't know what you mean by that, when you say sky the bow, that would be when some, if, if your draw weight is, is too high for what you're comfortable with, a lot of people will pull their, put their bow hand up high in the air and then pull down and because it's easier to draw back a really heavy weight when it's kind of in that angle. So if you find yourself doing that, that is a clear sign you're drawing back too much. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a really important reminder. Yeah. And I, I, I should say something too, you know, when, when you talked about drawing, drawing and holding on target for a long time and kind of floating that pin, like that's a real important distinction to make. Like don't, don't throw out your block target and try to hold that pin for 45 seconds directly on top of a, a little bullseye. Yeah. You'll, you'll start to develop all kinds of wonkiness between your ears. And it's not a good thing. So you want to, you know, if, if I'm working on, uh, hold my bow for a long time, I'm not aiming. Like, so I'm, I'm at full draw, but I'm not settled in. I'm my head's off. I'm not looking through my aperture, my, my peep sight. When, when that happens, that's when I start aiming. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's an important reminder. All right. What do we have next? Um, I would say just on that, as far as, as practice and, and, you know, real world, real situational type of practice, uh, I, the one thing that I always tell people, especially new, newish bow hunters is if there's any way for you to do it, get yourself a 3d deer target. And, and I say that because we, we kind of preach this, you know, three, four five inches behind the shoulder, halfway up mentality for shots, but we're assuming a broadside deer. And I've seen new bow hunters take that and go, well, I need to aim three inches behind the shoulder, but not really considering what the deer's angle is, you know, what, you know, not only quartering way, quartering two, but how high up in the tree are they, if they're in a tree stand or a, using a saddle and it's not a simple thing for picking your point of impact is always just being three inches behind the shoulder. So if I take a, a 3d deer target and pretty much after the sight in phase, all I use is 3d targets. I don't, I don't shoot a lot of bullseyes throughout the summer, but 
if I put one, you know, pound in one rebar steak, I can spin that, that 3d target around. And so I can get into, uh, you know, the quartering away shots or a slightly quartering toward, or I'm, I'm lucky I have a deck I can shoot from so I can get that uh, elevated practice without having to get into a tree. And what it does is it, it forces your brain to go, okay, the deer's at this position or that position or this position, kind of like you know, when, when you are with an experienced bow hunter in a tree stand, that's all they're thinking about when that buck walks in. Yeah. You know, like what, if he moves this way or he just turned this way, now I got to think about this. Now my point of impact's three inches back. And if you spend time practicing for that, as opposed to just, you know, broadside at 20 yards or, or shooting at bullseyes, it just helps, it helps you get into that autopilot mindset when you want, when you watch that deer walk in that you're going to, you're going to probably be in a better place as far as where you're going to settle that pin. Yeah. So it just blew my mind with your your idea of only putting in one piece of rebar so you can spin the target around i don't know why i never thought of that but that is genius <laughs> so you can get all the different angles well it's dumb right because you could just walk one way or the other but i i say that because where i shoot in in my yard i have a pretty narrow lane and so i can't just walk 20 yards to the right or left i have to stay i have to shoot from a sort of a narrow lane and so i have to turn my target well yeah and i think there's a lot of people that would find themselves in some kind of situation like that where they've got their one elevated spot or the one spot where they've got their stuff stacked up it just makes it easier um that's that's smart do you, do you know where that came from mark so where, where? uh i i had as many problems as i've had with buck fever I've had turkey fever worse almost. <laughs> and when I started bow hunting turkeys, I could not hit a turkey correctly. It, it like ruined me for a while. And so I ended up buying a standing turkey target and a, a strutting turkey target. And I put in just because I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I only need one, one rebar there, put them in and you'd shoot that target and it would spin naturally a little bit. And what I realized is like every time one of my arrow hits, my next shot, my point of impact is different. That's and nice. it was like one of those dumb light bulb moments where I'm like, oh, I could do this yeah. <laughs> with any target, you know? I like it. So do you have a favorite 3D target? I've tried a couple. Um, what's what's one or two that you'd recommend to people? Uh, I like Reinhardt a lot, man. So yeah. they're more expensive than than a lot of the other targets on the market. But I've had I've had some of their targets for like – six, seven years out in Minnesota winters and never covered them, never taken them inside. And I can shoot them with broadheads and field points. And, you know, it's kind of a buy once, cry once scenario, but they last a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I'll second that. That's been the one that I've stuck with the most. And, and yeah, I hate the upfront cost, but I have personally seen the exact same thing. It lasted longer than I, that's, that's what's behind my house right now is a couple of Reinhardt's. So or whatever that's worth, they uh, they seem to get the job done. Yep. I've got one more on my end, Tony. Okay. And this one is the one where you call me weird is gonna <laughs> come home to roost. Because <laughs> this one, this one isn't uh, isn't like a hunting tip. This isn't a shooting tip. This is a uh, self development tip. <laughs> um. This comes from a book I really like. It's called Atomic Habits. Um, and it's a book about how to, like, how habits and how the, the psychology of, of setting habits, sticking to habits and goals and all that stuff, how that 
you know, can be learned and, and placed into action in your daily life. And it's backed up by a bunch of really interesting research. And one of the things that all these different folks have, have found through their studies is that a really simple way to actually follow through and achieve goals or a set of tasks like what we're talking about here is to do something called set an implement an implementation intention. So an implementation intention is a fancy word for writing down your goals, making them very specific and action-oriented, and then putting a date on them. So rather than saying, all right, I listened to Mark and Tony, and they said that I should get permission on a new property. So yeah, this year I'm going to try to get permission on a new property. That would be the way that Mark 10 years ago maybe would have done things. But Mark in 2021 would try to set an implementation intention around that. So what I would do is tonight or tomorrow morning when I wake up early and I've got my planning time, I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to set three goals for the off season. These guys inspired me to, to actually do a few other things. So I'm going to pick three of them or maybe just one of them. Let's say I'll pick one of them and I'm going to do this get permission thing. So I'm going to write my implementation intention. That means I'm going to be very specific about this goal. So my specific goal is that I'm going to get permission on at least one new property this year. But to do that, Mark said it's a numbers game. So I'm going to ask for permission on 10 properties. So there's my very specific thing. I'm going to knock on 10 doors for permission. The second thing you got to do is you need to attach a deadline to it. This is really important. Actually put a time or a date when you're going to do it. So you write down, I'm going to knock on 10 doors and I'm going to do it this weekend or you know, the first weekend in May, which will be May 11th, something like that. If you do that, if you set a specific goal with some kind of deadline attached to it and you take the physical action of writing it down and put it somewhere you're going to see it, the odds that you follow through on that are much, much higher than if you were to just say, oh yeah, I'll do that someday. So it's a simple little exercise that actually can make you do big important things. So I know that's a nerdy weird thing, but my suggestion is to, after this podcast, write a couple implementation intentions. Um, maybe it's something we talked about here today that's inspired you, or maybe there's something else you've been thinking about that's on your off-season to-do list. Write it down, be specific, put a deadline on it. It can actually help. Am I am I weird because of that, Tony? Or is there anything there that makes you nod your head and say, yeah, I can see that? Uh, that's a great strategy for a guy like you, Mark. <laughs> that's the nicest way anyone's ever told me I'm full of shit before. <laughs> Take your Adderall, uh, make your list, uh, set your future in motion. I love it. Oh, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to badger you into doing some of these, Tony. <laughs> What, um, what's your last uh, off-season idea? Um, I'm going to freelance this a little bit more, I think. You know, I think – I do think that social contracts and contracts with yourself are valuable. I, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of you, but I do actually do think that that's, that's true. I also think – I mean, this kind of ties back to some of the other stuff we talked about. But I had this moment uh, – sometime last year, I was talking to our mutual friend Andy May – and, you know, we, we typically talk about whitetails, which would surprise no one, mm -hmm. but we got off on the topic of smallmouth and man, we talked about smallmouth fishing for a long time. And what I realized, and I, and I realized this a lot with my little girls taking them into the woods 
is we're we're looking at whitetail hunting like there's there's a certain percentage of hunters out there who are just like that's my thing that's all I do uh, every every moment I spend in the woods I am on the you know that focus that mission focus or if I'm at home and I have free time I'm e scouting the crap out of these new spots and I you know like that's that's perfect for some people I think a lot of people aren't wired for that. And, but they still want to get better. They just don't want to do that kind of hyper-focused approach to whitetails. And what I realized talking to Andy, and I've, I've known some other people along the way who had just had what I call critter sense. Like they just got out there after anything. They were just, they were open to being out in the woods, hunting, fishing, doing whatever they could. And it just helped them get better at everything, which of course ties into whitetail hunting. So I always, I always tell people like, just spend more time out there. I mean, I, I talked to Zach Farenbaugh about this a lot too, like just how often he says he just goes out into the woods in the summer or goes to just find some deer to look at. And it's just, it's, it's not really tied to becoming a better deer hunter, but it makes you a better deer hunter, you know, kind of like the, the Turkey trip that is loosely tied to scouting for some fall trip in the future, all of that stuff, even, you know, you get out there and go wade some of those trout streams that you like to fish yep. and you, you see crossings, you know, and you see where, where is this deer crossing and why, why did they cross here? Well, it's like this nice little drainage feeds down here and you start seeing stuff like that when you're out there more. And I know it's a huge leap to say like, Oh, getting better at being a trout fisherman is going to make you a better whitetail hunter. But I actually think it does. Like, I think the more you figure out with one thing feeds into the other and it just, it's like the rising tide lifting all ships. I think spend more time out there just yeah. generally. And I'll say also, you know, I'm, I'm wired differently you know, as, as you alluded than you are and some other people. So I, I, I usually go pretty hard at anything I'm going to do. And, um, but what I found as you described, is that if you allow yourself so if if someone listening is wired like me and finds themselves going like this like as i do i found like for me fly fishing has become this other thing that i've become like obsessed with and have gone really hard at but i have not attached any goals or objectives or mission or some kind of achievement there's none of that stuff attached to it so I can go out there and, and have this, it's kind of like this equal but opposite force in my mind. Like I've got this like huge obsession for deer hunting that is very focused and goal oriented and I'm always trying to get better and I'm trying to learn, learn, learn and do, do, do. Um, and then trout fishing for me has become this other thing that I've really come to love and become obsessed with, but I just go out there to just like be there. And it's the total opposite. I'm not stressed ever. I don't find myself throughout the year like, how do I get better? How do I have 10 off-season tasks to get better? It's none of that. But I still love reading a book about it and like my curiosity is satiated about it. And I can get out there and just kind of be consumed with something. But something that's that's very much lower stakes than I guess when I'm going into a deer hunting season. So for me, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. For me, what that looks like is going deep into something still, but it's it, approaching it from a totally different mindset and approaching it with a, like just getting out there and really enjoying it and like just being in the moment completely, whether I catch fish or not. While deer hunting, I'm fully immersed in, but I'm just because of who I am, I'm, I'm oriented to try to achieve some kind of goal. That's just my thing. But 
uh, yeah, I think diversity in your outdoor experiences is just like a good, healthy thing. At least for me, I found that to be the case. And, and obviously, you know, you've talked about, we've talked about us obsessive deer hunters. We kind of need a release of elf. We need something that we can still be outside and enjoying the great outdoors, but doing it in a way that is not so OCD or so gung ho or so whatever it is that we are both in our, we, we are that way in different ways, Tony. I do it my own way. You do it your own way, but we're something and we both need a way to like release that while still enjoying nature and, and getting outside and testing our critter sense. So I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, I was, I was just talking to a buddy of mine uh, earlier today. Who's, who's picking up his first bird dog. You know, he's going to get a little lab puppy this morning and we were just talking about where we would meet up this fall, this coming fall, as far as, you know, maybe, maybe hunt a few wood ducks or maybe hunt some woodcock or grouse and just talking about these things. And it, it, what it makes me think about is, you know, not, not only like the fly fishing example, but just everything you spend out, like the more you're, you're open to, the more you'll see these opportunities out there. So you might be sitting on a tree stand and see a bunch of ducks fly by, or you might be duck hunting and see a buck cruising somewhere. I, I have stuff like that happen to me all the time when I'm out there hunting or, you know, very uh, obvious example is how often in the late season when I'm pheasant hunting, I jump big bucks on public land out of patches of cover that just blow my mind. And all of that stuff just sort of gets filed away. And, you know, I'm not, I'm out there to hunt roosters with my dog. I'm not out there to scout deer, but there's value in, in these, these sort of generalist pursuits in a way that just feeds everything. Yep. Makes a lot of sense to me. Well, that is, uh, that's our 10, that's our 10 off season ideas. Um, I guess I've got one last question, Tony. If you were at the bar with your buddies and they're saying to you, man, what's that Mark Kenyon guy like? <laughs> How would you answer it now? <laughs> uh, he is the the coolest, normalist, uh, yeah. star quarterback, yeah. Uh, yeah. nicest is, guy ever. All right. I know when smoke's being blown up my ass, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Thank you for uh, – Thanks for making the time to do this. This is uh, this is a good time, and and hopefully there's some helpful things here for folks. I think there are. I hope so. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. All right, and that's gonna do it. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hopefully, we gave you a few things to think about over the coming months and get to work on because there's a lot to do. There's a lot of good times to be had out there, but by putting in some of that extra effort on the front end. You'll be able to enjoy it even more come hunting season 2021 or whatever season it is you're working on. Maybe it's five years from now, but I hope some of this stuff can help you out. And until we chat next time, thank you for listening and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. 
you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 